The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. We are live today from the SALT Conference in New York City. We will be joined a bit later by our host here, SkyBridge's Anthony Scaramucci. We'll ask him whether the crypto winter is getting any closer to changing seasons anytime soon. In the meantime, we have a big week on tap. As all of you know, for the markets, tomorrow's critical inflation read, the CPI, and it comes just as stocks are trying to mount another rally after a strong week. Joe Terranova is here with me today. We'll also be joined today by Amy Raskin, Steve Weiss, and Jim Labenthal. Check the markets as we always do, 12 noon in the east. We got off the schneid last week, as you know, closed above some key technical levels. Maybe looks like we're trying to fade out a little bit, but we're still holding, at least on the Dow, up 170. S&P 500 is good for 28, and NASDAQ's higher in the 10-year note yield at 330. So we still have some major questions to be answered. Maybe this is the week, in fact, that we do that, Joe, as we're going for four in a row. It's all about tomorrow, I guess. It is. At this point, it's about CPI. And I think we've priced in, uh, for sure, a much better reading. Now, I think for the market to kind of extend gains, you're going to need to see something below 8%. Uh, estimates are calling for somewhere around 81 Let's see something below 8 to get really excited. And let's see what the core measures as well, too. The core excluding food and energy, that's going to be important. If this move, Farmer Jim, is all riding on tomorrow, I know you're going to be sweating bullets. You're going to be sweating bullets when that number comes out because you need it to be good for your thesis to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Joe's right as well. I mean, another way to phrase this is if it's bad, if it's above expectations, we got Houston, we got a problem. Um, however, having said that, you know, I am looking at, at gasoline futures. I've been talking to you about that for a long time. Uh, freight costs, inventory to sales ratios. There's a lot of reasons to think that it might come in light. Now, I also want to acknowledge that rent is a problem and the Fed wants to see some signs of cracking in the labor market, which it just hasn't. So what, what you come down to is, yes, it's just one data point and the Fed wants more than one data point. But it's a pretty important data point to get right. And if it goes wrong, Houston, we've got a problem. Unless you, you figure, Weiss, that even a, a good report doesn't necessarily change all that much in, in the big picture. Yes, okay, we hope it's coming down, but it's still way elevated above where the Fed needs it to be. The Fed's going to keep interest rates higher for longer as a result of that. So what in the big picture does it really change? In the big picture, uh, at the end of the road, it changes absolutely nothing. Uh, in terms of what it does on a short-term trading basis, well, I think the market will have a pretty powerful rally uh, if the number is, uh, is a weak number, meaning showing inflation coming down. Uh, because the market has just shown this incredible appetite for taking on risk, despite what the Fed governors have said. So when you actually have some evidence that, and it's not necessarily prolonged evidence, it's just that this one data report 
is working in the bulls' favor, you'll see the market take off. Plus, you also have an absence of news. So companies aren't going to come out and lower numbers this early in the quarter. Um, so I think the market take off nicely. Uh, on the other hand, given what's happened over the last week, uh, if, it's, if it's a strong number, bad inflation number, you'll see the market give up the 10% and put on. So it really is a binary event yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. No, that sounds right. Um, Amy, is that how you see it, too? Uh, if you're coming off, you know, we are coming off a good week in which Mark Newton of Fundstrat, who we cite quite often, points out the, the breadth was far more broad based than many may realize. He thinks the rally likely gets to 41.25 to 41.50 at a minimum, he says. Uh, can't rule out an even larger push higher if CPI shows weakening headline inflation on falling gas prices. You do have Tom Lee, and he's been putting out expectations, too, that inflation is going to drop like a rock, and it already is. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think Steve's exactly right. It's a binary event tomorrow. The market will move on it. It's. I also think it's ridiculous in some ways that we're spending so much time focused on a number that's a lagging indicator to determine what the Fed policy is going to do, to in, which works with the 12 to 18 month lag. So I do think there's a lot of mismanagement here um, in terms of what's going on and what the market's looking at or misanalysis, you know, mis wrong analysis, I guess I would say. But it is what it is. And the market's going to move on this number. You know, 41.25 is, I think, 30 points from here. It's 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 nothing. I, I mean, I, I think, yes, the market could easily get there, sure. Um, but, um, you know, I, I really think we have to focus on what the, what the Fed funds rate is, but we also have to focus on what the neutral rate is. And I think what we're learning is that the neutral rate is higher than anyone thought it was or consensus was, which means that, you know, the Fed raising rates isn't as impactful as we thought it was six months ago. Yeah, so Joe, you know, th these technical levels, you, you got above the 50-day on the S&P and the NASDAQ, 200-day has, has been the, the, the spot where yes. you you've hadn't, haven't been able to get uh, over that. Jonathan Krinsky, who's on our program uh, quite frequently, says the Bears fumbled on the goal line at 3,900, but the game's not over yet. We see downside risk as we head into the seasonally weak second part of September. I, I want to know what you're personally doing that you put on the cues last week. Okay. Yes. After, after saying you wanted to, but then you didn't because you were worried technically about where the market was at the setup just wasn't great uh, for the cues trade. Where are we today? So last Wednesday, 295 and a half is where I initiated on the cues. A lot of that was because of what I witnessed in the energy market. I also think that we really, in the early part of last week, had rebuilt that 2008-style bearishness, both in terms of sentiment and you could see it reflected in positioning as well. Um, the, the, the critical line for the market is going to be that 200-day at 42.72. How we get there, I couldn't tell you. We're sitting right now at 4,100, but you will get the non-discretionary rules-based um, funds that will engage above that 42.72 despite whatever their macro view is on the market. Do you think but a positive CPI is enough to get you over the 200-day moving average? Because you said it, kinda can, it, can be, it can be a short-term game changer if you can get above that level, which we've been unable to do. Yeah, so I, I think a, a lot of what the near-term vision is, look, we're, we're potentially going to get a better inflation reading, right? Um, a lot of that has already been priced into the market already. 
Now, if you're able to get an even better inflation reading and now engage a lot of that non-discretionary buying, well, that's a little bit of a game changer for the market where your upside potential can extend even further. Um, I, I will tell you putting those cues on and heading into tomorrow from a risk management perspective, on the close today, I have to take off half of those because I've got such a significant binary event in front of me. So I'll take off half the cues on the close. Take off half the cues today at the close. Take off half the cues. No matter what. No matter what. No matter what. That, that's the, I think that's the prudent thing to do. I'm in at 295 and a half. We're somewhere around 309, 310. Okay. Take off half. Then the other half, you put a 296 stop in. You're not going to lose any money on it. And you hope CPI comes in way better and you're able to engage that systematic buying that gets you through the 200-day moving average. See, Jimmy, I, I go back to the, the idea of even if it's a, a positive read, which, you know, look, the market has been, I think, front-running that. Um, that in part led to the rally last week. You're higher today going in because you think tomorrow is going to be a good number. And maybe that helps in the short term as it, as it likely will. Uh, but it doesn't change the scenario of inflation still highly elevated, of the Fed still highly engaged. And thus, you have people like Scott Minard coming out and suggesting as a result of that, the valuation of the market is still too high. No matter what the inflation read is, the valuation doesn't make any sense. And thus, he specifically is calling for that 20 percent plus pullback, uh, perhaps by the middle of October. How do you square that? Yeah, I, I think you're making excellent points. And, you know, we know all of us on the show right now that the battleground that's coming up is about earnings. Um, you know, the CPI and the PPI this week, they'll do what they're going to do. As Steve pointed out, we're really in a, a low news flow environment right now. And we're going to be for a few weeks until you get towards the end of September, maybe get some pre-announcements. Maybe you'll get a few during the conference season as well. But, you know, the meat and potatoes of what's going on with earnings isn't going to happen for four weeks at the earliest when it starts. So, you know, for, for Scott Minard's prediction, the valuation, um, you know, what, what multiple should be. I'm actually going to quote Steve Weiss. It's hard to talk about the multiple when you don't know what the E in the price to earnings is. You happen to know, Scott, I'm not going to back off of it, that I'm optimistic about earnings. I'm basing that on what I see from uh, economic statistics, whether it's the labor market, ISM surveys, etc. But I will absolutely admit that it's a nail biter and we're going to have to wait for four weeks to get some insight into whether my thesis is right or not. Yeah, Weiss, you know, I, I find it quite interesting that as negative as you are and have been on the market that I see here, playing off of what Joe talked about a moment ago, you actually bought the cues? That, take me through that. Yeah, so look, so, so I will. And uh, it, it, it's trading. It's very simply trading. And I try not to have any ego and, and uh, you know, preset uh, plan to go in uh, and stick it, stick with it. Um, so I've got a longer term view and I express that view with certain stocks like a Volkswagen, which is now by far my biggest position. Uh, and uh, then I've got the short term trading view. And, you know, I was with uh, and you referenced him last week. I was with the goat, uh, you know, for the last you know, five days. Uh, and that's Tepper. And he's, you know, he's taking advantage of trading as well. Now, I'm nowhere near the trader is. He is. But when you see opportunity, you have to take advantage of it. And clearly, the market forces were so strong and the breath was so strong last week that you had to participate. So I can't tell you that I'm going to be in the queues. I've already sold some of them today. Uh, I didn't buy them today. I came in long today. Um, but 
you know, tomorrow's binary number, as I said, I'd rather take the cues off today, you know, risk manage that as Joe's doing partially. And frankly, if the market trades up tomorrow based upon a really, you know, soft uh, inflation number, I'm not predicting that, uh, then you'll get an extended rally. So that's how I choose to play it. I've got to take what it gives me. And when you have a trending market that's going up every single day, as we had prior to this year, then you position accordingly. But when you've got the volatility that you have here, you can trade it. I'm never yeah. going to catch the first move in the queues, but I'll get in there at some point along the way. And I hope not to catch, yeah. to reverse it, you know, and catch the downside. But you, you obviously don't think that rates are going to go up much right now from here if you are establishing a long position in the queues for however long you decide that you want to hold them, right? This is, this is a, okay, inflation's going to come in better tomorrow. Rates are not going to roar higher. And thus my queues trade, at least in the near term, is going to work pretty well. Does that seem to make sense on your thinking? No, no. I I'm not taking a view on tomorrow, uh, any meaningful view. I'll probably keep a very small position in the queues for tomorrow because I think the risk of the upside is much greater than the downside risk in one move if the number is good versus bad. So, but I don't want to, I can't predict what the inflation numbers are going to be. I can sort of predict, unlike unemployment numbers, what the reaction will be if it's, you know, within that realm of possibility. Uh, so it's not a long-term well, position, and it's not based upon rates. I hear you. You don't need, though, Joe, to you know to to predict the inflation numbers. You just need to get the trend right at this point. Correct. It needs to continue to to go down for trades like that. That's right. To work. Yeah, I I, I think it's really important also to to kind of underscore that a lot of the activity recently, Scott, it's derivative oriented. It's in the futures market, it's in the options market, and a lot of the messaging on the show from uh, committee members over the last couple of weeks has really been towards the retail investors saying, hey, this isn't the spot to sell your stocks, right? This is a period where we're normalizing monetary policy. Market's gonna be a little bit choppy, understand that. On the other side, we're gonna come out of this okay. So the call to action within the market has really been doing what Steve is doing, doing what I'm doing, which is trading more of the indexes, trading more of futures, trading more of options, reacting to what we're seeing in the oil futures market. But for that retail investor, sit tight, wait this out. You don't sell your stocks at this level. No, but the question is, Amy, do you get a chance to buy more of what you have lower, right? If you think that, yeah. you know, irrespective of, of what's happening uh, right at the moment here, and you do have this nice move that we are trying to follow through from, from last week, are you going to get a minored-like pullback where you're going to get to buy more of what you love at a lot lower than where it is now? Honestly, if we get a hot number tomorrow and the market sells off, I would be a buyer. Um, I, I think inflation is going to come down. Um, again, it's a lagging indicator. The leading indicators are telling you inflation is going to come down. It's also a rate of change. It's not a level. So if energy just stays where it is, you know, that gives you a 0% inflation rate because, you know, it, it's the change that inflation's measuring. So inflation will come down. Whether it comes down tomorrow, I don't know, but it will come down over the next few months just as you get higher 
comparables and you just see the leading indicators and lots of things and chipping and, you know, you see what Target and Walmart is doing, inflation will come down. So, you know, sort of counterintuitively, if you get a hot number tomorrow and the market sells off a lot, yeah, I would use that as a buying opportunity. What would you be a buyer of that you love so much in your, in your book that you have now that you would take advantage of that opportunity with? Well, I think you would probably get the biggest pullback in, in some consumer discretionary, which I would buy. I actually like Europe here. We've been adding to Europe, um, so there are some names there. I do think, you know, again, probably what's helping the market today is the news on the, on the war in Ukraine. Um, to the extent that we, you know, that ends sooner than people think, um, that will be a good inflation, you know, good influence on inflation. Um, I do like healthcare as well. A lot of um, the healthcare names I think look very attractive. So um, I would sort of be an adder almost across the board. Joe, Less so, I, I, I would say energy. Game. Let's not. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I would say energy. Let's not forget, Mark Fisher came on the show last week with oil below $82 and said this is a tremendous opportunity. He said this week was the, uh, right, said, said when he came on, not yet, right. but midweek this week uh, was the time to, to buy. Now, he's talking the commodity, the commodities uh, specifically, right, well, oil and natural gas, it, it, not necessarily the equities that go along with it. But maybe agreed. the point can be made that if you like one, you have to like the other. Well, and, and both of them are, are working since then. That's for sure. Energy uh, equities is working as well. So I, I, I think that's critical to have within your portfolio. And, and I'll go back again. I saw Kevin Simpson on overtime with you the other day, his purchase of Apple. Apple, yeah. I, I, how could you not buy Apple in this environment? I'll, I'll, I'll say that once again. I think Apple was below 154. We're on the show today. It's already 162 in just a matter of a couple of days. It just really checks the box on every fundamental metric that you want to identify in a company in which we are in a clearly defensive environment. Yeah. How about that, Jimmy? Um, Joe um, rightly points out, and I'm glad he did this. This is a nice move today uh, from Apple. Up is, five bucks, three percent. It, it is very back above very 160. Yeah, I mean, definitely you have to respect that. I completely agree with Joe. Um, I want to throw out one other sector, though, that might be in the early stages of a rally, and it's certainly unloved. It's the financials. You know, last few days, I mean, this could be the green shoots of a good rally here. Now, if it's going to continue, it's got to be predicated on the economic conditions on the ground, which is that the yield curve maybe uninverts and, you know, the odds of a recession go down if inflation is on the right track. Odds of recession go down, then credit quality goes up, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just the last three or four days, it's been a pretty strong move that I think needs to also be respected. You know, Weiss, there was a note out today suggesting that the financials and, and this note today isn't the only or isn't the first mention of, of this sort of idea that the financials specifically are pricing in a steep recession. <laughs> that they are they're missed priced for what the uh, the current environment I guess you could say, uh, is their balance sheets are strong. You've got a, a number of financial stocks. Yeah, so I, so I have B of A and I've got uh, Goldman Sachs and, and both have done well. I mean, you know, B of A is well off its highs, but it's also well off the lows at this point. And I like them both. The, the issue with those is that is that corporate issuance is such a big part. It's such a big margin business. And they're not going to see any of that. But I think at this point, you've seen them, you know, the big concern on them was that you're going to see the SOFIs of the world and, and all these, you know, digital banks come along and take their share. And that's just not been the case. 
so I like the financials. Uh, I think you need to see the calendar come back a little bit for them to really take off. Uh, and I do think that loan standards are going to tighten up because, you know, there was, there was a survey of CEOs out there and a surprisingly decent number are looking for a recession. And when you're looking for a recession, it means you're not going to load up your balance sheet with debt. So, so I think they'll do okay, but I don't think they're going to outperform from here going forward. I'm not selling them at all. 30 seconds. I own them long term. I, I, I uh, hear you. Yeah, yep. I got you. I got you. Joe, give me 30 seconds on the banks. I'd go asset managers. It's the second derivative trade on an improving equity market. I'd look at BlackRock. I'd look at T. Rowe Price. I'd look at Charles Schwab. Not Morgan. Don't you own Morgan Stanley? I own Morgan Stanley, and I own Goldman Sachs, and I also own Bank of America. But I'm not so sure the big banks are where you're going to see uh, the, the, the alpha creation that you're going to get in other financials if markets rally. I got you. Okay, coming up. Activist investor Dan Loeb retreating from pushing Disney to spin off ESPN. We'll find out what's behind that change. We'll get the trade, of course, coming up next. We do have ownership on the desk today and later from the SALT conference here in New York City. Don't miss Skybridge Capital's Anthony Scaramucci. He's the host here. We'll visit with him coming up. Halftime's back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're hanging on to positive gains today. Activist investor Dan Lowe backing off from pushing Disney to sell ESPN. Leslie Picker following this story joins us now. You're always following the money on this front uh, for us. So what do we make of this? Yeah, so it's a pretty rare about face, especially in this kind of a time frame. It was just a month ago where he revealed a new stake in Disney. He'd had a stake a few years yeah, prior. That's right, that's right. But then revealed that stake about a month ago. And as part of the plan, as part of the letter to Bob Chapek at the CEO of Disney, he recommended spinning off ESPN, which of course is what captured all the headlines because that would be a big deal, demonstrably, you know, remake the look of Disney and remake the way that their business model operates as ESPN has been this cash cow. Well, over the weekend, he had a tweet saying basically, I have a 
different understanding. A, a, a quote-unquote better understanding. Better understanding of this business now. And, um, you know, basically implying that I see why it works better together as, as opposed to being apart. Maybe he had a conversation with Mr. Chapek. I, I mean, who knows, uh, obviously. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. I have no insight as to whether they did that uh, or not. But you mentioned it's the second go-round in a few years mm -hmm. uh, between Loeb uh, and Disney, which I found interesting from the very beginning when we learned about the second entree into this name. Yeah, so that's interesting in and of itself and unique in and of itself. And this time, you know, if you kind of compare letters between this go at Disney versus the last go at Disney, this one definitely, I mean, I wouldn't say it was forceful per se, but they did, you know, he kind of implied maybe the company needs a board refresh. That wasn't something you heard about a few years ago. He mentioned that, you know, they should keep the dividend. That was something that he's been, you know, a long champion of, uh, keeping the dividend uh, suspension in place, something that took place during the pandemic. It's also interesting because it proves kind of how difficult streaming is for activists these days, because this comes after, if you recall, Bill Ackman had a pretty quick about face with Netflix, oh, with Netflix earlier yeah. this year. That was like a three month turnaround. So. It seems good in theory. I think streaming is just pivotal. Um, it's in this period of transition, and so activists think that they have an idea of what to do with it. Mm -hmm. But then when they kind of dig under the hood a little bit, it appears that it's a little more challenging than it may seem from the get-go. I know he did well uh, in the first go-round mm -hmm. in, in shares of, of Disney, uh, so we'll see what the second round holds uh, for Mr. Loeb in third point. You like Disney here. I, well, you do. I, I, I like the new. Yes, I do. You yeah. like it in part because the Loeb's involved. I like it again. I, I, I'm going to make a wager, along with the wager that Dan Loeb is making here, and uh, I, I'll do that. I'm beginning to build a position on the close today in Disney. I think when you're talking, you're buying a new position in Disney. New position. I have, been, I have not been in Disney uh, for about two years now. Okay. I've stayed out of Disney. I'm going to go back into Disney. I'll begin to bin, and this is a long-term position, not a trading position. But first of all, I applaud what, what Bob Chapek is talking about here. You always, when you think of Disney, especially when it's trading at 46 times, you want to know what's the growth opportunities. Well, Disney Plus was the growth opportunity. Give me something more. ESPN, we knew that there was value in ESPN. Now we're talking about potential for sports betting. Mm -hmm. Utilizing ESPN in that regard with the instilled base that ESPN has. DraftKings you know, FanDuel, they don't have that instilled base. That's another growth opportunity. That's an engine that I think Dan Loeb sees, and I'm willing to wager, okay, just as he is, that Bob Chapek is gonna be able to pull that off. The, the difficult thing, Leslie, is with these, this level of uh, activist investor, you, and we learned it the first time, I think, with the position, you never know how long they're gonna stay around. Mm -hmm. So when I ask people, do you like it because Loeb's in it, uh, the moment you say yes and think that he's going to be in it for a long time, I mean, you just you just never know. Not suggesting that he's not going to be, but you truly don't know. No, you you don't. You don't know what's in the mind of these activist investors. I and mean, then look, the stock is down 26% this year. It's a stake of about a billion dollars for third point. So it's it's something where activists, they also have constituents that they have to appeal to. It's the, the LPs or if they have an SPV, it's the investors in the, SP, the special purpose vehicle yeah. to invest in uh, whatever situation they're looking at. And so they have to do what's best for their firm, their fund, uh, and their LPs. And so, you know, there's only so much that they can really stomach with losses in, in a, a name like this. Yeah, he gets the benefit of the doubt, though. 
does Mr. Loeb uh, quite often because of his track record. Exactly. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Amy, mm -hmm. uh, you own Disney. What do you think about it right here? Um, near term, I'm not expecting anything great. I mean, the company has, has good pricing power. I think um, Disney Plus and getting direct to their customers from a long-term perspective will be great. But I think some money has to come out of media. There's just too many big companies putting too much money into the sector right now. Um, but, I also, but I ultimately think Disney's a winner. Yeah, we're going to get some good insight uh, a little bit later this week as well when our own David Faber sits down for an exclusive interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Again, that's 9 o'clock in the morning uh, Eastern time this coming Thursday. Do not want to miss that. Let's get the headlines now with Christina Partzinevelos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Scott. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Three children have died after being found unconscious at a Brooklyn beach early Monday morning. Police are questioning the children's mother after a family member called 911 and to say that the woman had been found in, quote, a disturbed state. Multiple family members said they were worried the mother might cause the kids harm. And now to tennis. After his big win at the U.S. Open last night, Spaniard Carlos Alcarez, Alcarez sorry, has become the youngest player ever to reach men's number one. The 19-year-old was ranked third in the world going into the tournament and defeated the number five player, Casper Ruud, in four sets to win his first major. And tonight on NBC and Peacock, you can catch the 74th Primetime Emmy Awards. Pandemic era hit Squid Games is vying to become first, the first non-English language program to win Best Drama Series. Two other first-time nominees, Severance and Yellow Jackets, will battle mainstays like Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Stranger Things, and Succession in a crowded race for Best Drama. Can't wait. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff. Christina, thank you. Christina Partzinella, straight ahead. The latest trends in ETF investing plus. We've got Skybridge Capital founder Anthony Scaramucci. He's joining us shortly from the SALT conference. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani, coming to you from the Future Proof Conference on the Boardwalk in beautiful Huntington Beach, California, where ETF investing very much a hot topic today, including single stock ETFs. Last week, Direction added six more single stock ETFs to the lineup. I'm talking about leverage and inverse plays on big names, Amazon, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Let's talk to the man who did it. Dave Matza is head of product at Direction. Dave, these single stock ETFs, they're proliferating like rabbits. I had 22 at last count. Who's using these and what are they doing with them? These uh, ETFs are really intended to be used for tactical trading, and by that I mean the ability to make exposures on a daily basis. So what we're seeing is people take advantage of the volatility that we're seeing across markets and provide either an amplified view, in this case 1.5 times for direction, or take an inverse hedging view uh, at, at uh, inverse 1x. You know, these single stock ETFs, Dave, they've been met with a lot of hostility from the regulatory community. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has been hostile towards them and many in the ETF community who say the invested public 
can't get their head around this daily reset of them, and these products have them. Do you envision a leveraged and inverse ETF for the entire S&P 500? Are we going to deal with hundreds of these down the road? Well, of course, time will tell how many of these ETFs come to market. We, are, we, have, we offer both bull and bear exposures on the top five largest stocks in the S&P 500. You know, so these, those particular securities have large, deep uh, uh, market caps and liquidity. And so for that, again, these are intended for folks who can make buy and sell and hold decisions on a daily basis to express that view on Tesla or Apple or Amazon, to your point. Now, where do we go from here? Uh, so it, where's the, the volume? The only volume I actually see is in your Tesla ETF that's out there. The other ones don't have a lot of volume. What is the industry going to basically say, if we don't see volume, we're not bringing out new products? Well, I think what's great about ETFs is that we've seen the marketplace speaks for itself, meaning we have over the years seen uh, investors and traders gravitate towards certain ETFs and others, not so much. In this particular case, we are seeing the most interest in Tesla. So particular TSLL, that's our 1.5 daily bull ETF, and also to some extent TSLS, which provides that short exposure. So to your point, right now, because of the volatility and headlines around Tesla, that's where the action's been. Anything around Tesla's attracting attention, including those leverage and inverse ETFs. Thank you, Dave. Coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, crypto, another big topic at this conference. We will be speaking with Rick Edelman of Edelman Financial Services, founder of Edelman, and Matt Hogan, the CIO of Bitwise Investments. They will outline the positive and negative forces fighting for control of the crypto world right now. That's all on ETF Edge, etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime re returns with Anthony Scaramucci right after this. I mentioned at the top of our show today that we are live from the SALT conference in New York City, hosted by Skybridge Capital, Anthony Scaramucci, the founder, of course, and the host of this conference. He's with us live. Joe Ternova and crew are, are still with us. It's good to see you. Thanks for having us. Uh, if there was any doubt as to how committed you are to crypto and blockchain, et cetera, look no further than this conference, because I looked at the agenda, and it's one after the other conversations about those topics. Yeah, well, tomorrow's a little more hedge fund oriented, but yes, you're right. Today is all about digital assets, the digital economy. Bill Barheit, the CEO of Abra, announcing his bank today from our stage, uh, saying that he thinks Bitcoin will be a million dollars a token by 2032. So yes, I am very committed. Uh, as you know, we just did it. Uh, uh, we sold a piece of the company to FTX for those reasons. Uh, but we want to be a diversified asset management company still, Scott, but we do have a big leg in Web3. We've got to get away from those predictions, don't we, that people come on stages and make and Bitcoin's going to be a million dollars by, you know, XYZ year. Why, why are we still in that environment where people are making these, what some would say, outlandish predictions about an asset that was overinflated and has come down to earth and may still need to come further down to earth? Well, I mean, listen, I, I'm not going to make the mistake of predicting anything near term, but I think the point that he was making with the web effect and with the networking effects that are associated with Bitcoin, Ethereum, the merge, et cetera, the use cases are going to continue to go up. And as the use cases go up, because of a finite supply, uh, you'll probably get a much higher price. I think that's just the message he's trying to make. At, at what point? does this crypto winter, as everybody has been calling it, yeah. change seasons? So, when, do, when does the sun start to come out? So Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried said this morning uh, that we are uh, in a dollar rush right now. There's a bull market for dollars. 
Uh, and it's probably not until that bull market for dollars is over, until the Fed starts to shift position related to where they are in the interest rate cycle, uh, you probably won't see that end. Uh, and so what is that, Scott? I don't know. Is it three months, six months, a year? I don't think it could be much longer than a year because I don't think the Fed wants to break the back of the core U.S. economy. So uh, to me, uh, it's probably six months. We still highly correlated to the stock market itself? So. I mean, as I well as the stock market has, has a problem. Uh, higher risk assets than yes. already risk assets are going to have an even bigger issue, no? I think so. I think, I think we're very tightly correlated for the time being to the NASDAQ and the riskier elements of the NASDAQ. And so uh, when that ends, I can only guess at that. But I do think the use cases are proliferating. The products associated with Bitcoin today versus a year ago have gone up exponentially. And so a year from now, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and these other uh, Solana, Algorand, things like that, you're going to see, I think, exponential growth in the applications, which will lead to higher prices. So you told me I um, that. I got my money in that. <laughs> yes, I know you do. Right. Uh, a lot of it, by the way. You, you told me, I think the last time you were on with me down at the stock exchange as part of uh, overtime, that the episode that you were going through related to crypto and the decline in crypto was the most serious situation for you since 2008, the global yeah, financial no crisis. No question. To what degree does the FTX stake alleviate the pressure on the firm that yeah. you may have been feeling? Well, I mean, the pressure on the firm has been totally alleviated. I mean, we're, we're, we're sitting now, I mean, we, we deployed those assets last week, so we have 50 plus million dollars of cryptocurrency assets on our balance sheet. Oh, so you because already did that. Oh yeah, no, no. I we, we we got the money from Sam on Thursday. We deployed it that morning, ah. and uh, you know, and so we've got a nice little bump. Of course, it's a volatile market. Who who knows where that's going to go over the interregnum? But I, I I think it's a very strong message to people. Uh, we have the most influential person in the world of cryptocurrency, one of the richest people in the world as an investor in Skybridge, he owns now 30% of the company, and our balance sheet now has 50 million plus dollars at current market prices in cryptocurrency. So I think it's a huge message to people. People thought, you know, when I was being interviewed by you, I had people calling me, you know, they were ready to write my obituary, or at least my financial obituary. I don't think they can do that right now. Uh, and Joe knows me a long time. He knows I'm a resourceful person. I'm like a human Swiss army knife. We pulled out the right weapon to go back to war. Uh, and we're going to double the size of the company over the next three years. When this conference is over, I'll be down in the Bahamas with Sam and his team brainstorming how we're going to double the size of uh, Skybridge's assets. Now, I was going to ask you if you had deployed the capital yet in, on the balance sheet in, yeah. in terms of, of crypto. And you Pulled did it. Trigger did you first. have to do it right, a, no. right when you did it? No. Are, are you making a, a statement of sorts on where the price is today? Yes, we're making a statement. I can't guess we could go 10, 20 percent lower. Who knows? Uh, but we think the massive cataclysm of the bear market is over. I'm not calling the bottom because I've been humbled by life and markets. So I'll never call a bottom. But I think we're way closer to the bottom than we were. And I, I, I like where we are right now. And uh, listen, when you have $50 million on your balance sheet as an asset manager like Skybridge, I think it does eliminate from people's minds uh, a worry about Skybridge. At least I hope that smart people at least will not be worried about Skybridge. And 
Uh, I'm super focused on the growth and the exciting opportunities ahead, uh, but I also think we can have a resource and networking transfer of my network to Sam and his team. You know, I've been at this longer than Sam has been on planet Earth. Okay, so I've got 34 years in, on Wall Street. I'm hoping that I can create a generational transfer of goodwill, the network, the SALT conferences globally to Sam and his team. And so I think I'm very excited about that opportunity as well. Is he going to start wearing a tie or are you going to start wearing a t-shirt? I, I What's got a more lot, likely? I got, I got a lot of t-shirts, guys, and I'm, <laughs> ready, I'm ready to deploy them at any time. Okay, but I'm never going to deploy the shoes that you're wearing. Okay, I'm just letting you know that, okay? You're too I'm, old I'm, to wear something I'm, like I'm, this. I'm sticking with my Gucci loafers. What do you think? I, I think what's, what's critical, and I'll ask you from the perspective of an asset manager that has mutual fund products, Virtus Investment Partners, right? How does that industry, with trillions of dollars invested in products, get comfortable with, number one, the volatility, and giving their clients proper exposure? We're not at that place right now. Well, we're definitely not at that place. I think three things have to happen. I think more regulatory clarity. I think a rate limiting step would be the Bitcoin Cash ETF in the United States. We have them in other parts of the world. I think we're behind on that. I think it's unfortunate. And I think the second, the second big thing is uh, just stepping forward. I think uh, BlackRock as an institution has done that. I think by the middle of next year with Aladdin, you'll see a lot more institutional assets. Quickly before we go, um, the idea of regulation, right? Gary Gensler continues to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, the Fed chair himself last week, we need legislation on this. Just, you know, it's typical of technological innovations. There isn't a regulatory framework that really gets after payment stable coins. And he went on to finish uh, that, that statement, but we need appropriate regulation is how he ended his comments. Yeah, so the, he's 100% right in that. The more regulation, the better, to Joe's question. More people will be open to it. Uh, Mike Novogratz and Tom Farley today from that stage said, no way you'll get post-midterm election regulation, not this year. Maybe it's the middle of next year. Obviously, the optimists want something this year. It's probably not going to happen until the middle of next year. I appreciate you having us. It's good to visit with it's you. To be Don't here. be Thanks jealous of my here. shoes, but we'll probably have you back if yeah. you change. That's yeah. Anthony Scaramucci. He's the host of, of SkyBridge. Your glasses. I just want to make uh, sure joining us knows. right here at the conference in which he is the host, of course. This is Salt. Stay with us. Mike Santoli joins us next with his midday word. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Today we're live at SALT. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. I, I think it's kind of obvious, right, at this point, looking ahead to tomorrow? Pretty much is. The market is actually in a pretty familiar position heading into the CPI number. I was just looking back uh, a month ago. Heading into the July CPI number on August 10th, the S&P had rallied from 3,900 to 4,100 over the prior, let's say, 10 trading days. This time we've done exactly the same thing, 39 to 41 uh, over more like six or seven trading days. Now, back then, got good news on the CPI, rallied for another few days, and then did roll over pretty hard as the Fed essentially got pretty hawkish and you had to consolidate. So I think that there's an in a similar uh, setup in the sense where people are positioned for the possibility of reasonably good news on inflation. Not sure how that's going to play uh, in terms of being able to extrapolate that into the Fed being done soon uh, or any of the other investment uh, and economic implications. All right, we'll visit with you for your last word. That's Mike Santoli yep. with his midday word. Up next, we have trades on some of the big analyst calls of the day today. We're back in two minutes.
do some calls of the day now. So I have a couple of conflicting calls here. Uh, Amy Raskin, I'm going to talk to you about Nike because you own it. Price target gets cut to 124 at Cowan. They do reiterate their outperform. UBS calls it a buy, and their target's 156. So you've got 124 and 156. What do you say as the shareholder? Um, I, I like Nike. We trimmed it earlier in the year, as I mentioned on the show, um, due to concerns over just near-term risk in China. I think those played out. But longer term, the growth in their digital business, better inventory management, lots of innovation. Um, I'm, we're, we're bulls. I think you can buy Nike here, and we'll probably we'll add to it soon. Okay. Uh, Farmer Jim, you own Union Pacific. Uh, that stock gets upgraded today to a buy from neutral. Price target goes to 260 from 227. I I like this name very much for the long term. For the short term, anyone thinking about entering this stock needs to just actually sit and wait for a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks. There is this looming threat of a strike, which would be very bad for the economy. Um, I think that's something to be worked out in the short term before you initiate a position. By no means am I saying you sell on this news. I'm just saying if you're looking to enter, why don't you do it downstream of that issue? Give me something quickly on Chevron and Exxon, Jimmy. You own Exxon, uh, initiated or reiterated, I should say, overweight at Piper Sandler today. Yeah, clearly there is a, uh, you know, a very bearish tone to the energy sector right now, but that seems to be very temporary. I think Amy mentioned that things have been turning in the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation. That may explain part of it, but we're a long way from resolution there. The bottom line is there is an energy uh, imbalance between supply and demand that's going to last for many years and support both Chevron and Exxon. All right, we will take a quick break, come back here from SALT and do final trades next. We'll do some final trades here. Weiss, I do have some more business with you, though, right? You bought more Volkswagen. Is that, in fact, your final trade? And then I have another move I want to talk to you about, too. Go ahead. Yeah, that is my final trade. Look, I, to me, it's the, it's the most compelling stock there is. When you're seeing valuation of Porsche between 60 and 90 billion, the upper end essentially marked cap of the company. It was my final trade last week mm-hmm. as well. VWAPY is actually what I bought. That's got over a 5% yield. It's the preferred. It's non-voting. So, yes. What, what's the other uh, business uh, discussion? You covered your, Scott? I don't think we did that. We covered the XLI short, right? Yeah, we did. I, I, look, I mean, the market was just moving. You know, it, it was like a, I didn't want to be rolled over by that steamroll, with, uh, particularly with Jim Labenthal driving it. And he'd be going back and forth over me. So I covered it last <laughs> week when I bought some cues. Right. Again, you know, All I right. didn't cover it at the bottom, nowhere near. Made a little money, yeah. and that's good enough in this market. Okay. All right. I don't have any more business with you. I'm good. Uh, Amy, final trade. Um, I'm going to go with Illumina again. I think we're getting closer to a okay. resolution on Grail, and there's some catalyst at the end of the month. Okay. Farmer Jim. Uh, glad to see Weiss covered that industrial short. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I mentioned financials earlier. This is creme de la creme. All right. Okay, and finally, Joe. Uber talked about a breakout in early August when I bought it. I think you're getting it now. Yeah, you're not the only one who thinks that. All right, thanks, everybody. That does it for us. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. 
Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.